0: From medieval physicians who thought a woman's womb could move around inside her body when distressed, to Victorian doctors who used hysteria as a catch-all term for all kinds of health issues, women have been frequently misdiagnosed and mistreated throughout history. In her new book Unwell Women, historian Eleanor Clegghorn charts the story and I spoke to her to find out more. Unwell Women is a fascinating journey through women's medical history, which reveals that there's been a long ingrained gender pain gap. So before we go any further, what do we mean when we're talking about the gender pain gap? The gender pain
3: gap is a term that really sort of came into popularity about 20 years ago with a growing awareness in medical humanities and sociology about the way that women's pain is treated differently in uh, doctor's surgeries, in A&E, compared to men's. So what happens in the gap, or what falls into the gap, is the treatment of women's pain from a medical point of view. So that might entail what kind of medication women are given, compared to what sort of medication men are given. And also the way that pain is seen as evidence of an illness. In men, it's much more likely to be considered a definite sign that something physical is really happening in the body, Whereas women, it might be assumed um, to be less credible, for example, a mental health condition or anxiety. So the gender pain gap, it really acknowledges that there is a vast difference um, that's been statistically and anecdotally shown over the last 20 years between the way that male and female pain is treated and, and it applies to medical settings. But it's also cultural as well because we have ideas about women's pain that, or women's relationship to pain that have been uh, ingrained over centuries, as you say, and produce the bias that women have a more emotional uh, relationship to physical sensation, which can impact how they report pain because they may be perceived, women might be perceived to be um, embellishing, exaggerating or... um, sort of overplaying their pain so it's a combination of culture and social stereotypes and also kind of ingrained medical attitudes that have you know forged this gender pain gap over time but really it's something that we've only become conscious of and started to tackle over the last 20 years.
0: So as you say, this is a current issue, but it has a really long history. So how far back can we trace the misdiagnosis and mistreatment of women based on gender-specific things?
3: I would say, I mean, in my book, I go back to ancient Greek, well, to the era of Hippocrates, who is often called the father of modern medicine. But he was actually not necessarily a figure on his own. He was a collection of authors... Uh, who wrote about human bodies and illnesses in in the Hippocratic era, which is considered by many people to be the beginnings of the sort of medical practice we have today. So, for example, our Hippocratic oath that doctors swear a version of still today is rooted in the Hippocratic uh, tenet to to do no harm, to care. And so Hippocrates or or the Hippocratic physicians, they... Wrote all these different tracts about how, how to care for different diseases. And they wrote some really important tracts on the diseases of women and on the care of women's bodies. And I think that it really goes back to the very beginnings, in which we might not have very formed and very sort of conceptualized ideas about how women experience pain. But what happens at those very in those very earliest centuries of medical knowledge is that there's an assumed difference between male and female bodies in that the male body is assumed to be an ideal, so stronger, drier, (laughs) um, more capable and more able to stave off diseases and illnesses. Whereas a female body is smaller, weaker, and sort of less less robust, less resistant to diseases. So from, from the very beginnings of medicine, we have a kind of othering of women. It really is rooted in the very beginnings of how we think about the relationship between sex difference and illness.
0: And how do ideas about women's social roles feed into all of this as well? Because throughout the book, that's really something that seems to impact on the way that they're viewed medically and vice versa, that the way that women are viewed medically and their biological failures, as you described there, in quote marks, impact on what they're deemed capable of in a social setting as well.
3: Absolutely. I think that, you know, if we go back, again, if we go back to ancient Greece, medicine is as much a reflection of what's happening in the social order as it is a discipline or or an art of working out what's happening inside people's bodies when they're unwell. So from its earliest, from its very beginnings, medical ideas reflected the social status quo. And of course, ancient Greece was a patriarchy. Women's primary role was childbearing and child raising. And so if we think how knowledge is constructed in relation to that period in history, of course, the way that knowledge about illnesses and diseases was constructed then was very much in relation to the function of bodies in society. So women performed the role of bearing and raising children. So it made sense that their illness and diseases pivoted around that function. And I think from there on, there's a real integration between ideas about who women are and how they should live and ideas about their biology and how their anatomy works, it's as if the reproductive apparatus or the reproductive duty is the centre of the female body. And as medicine, as medical knowledge evolved over the centuries, it also ref- always reflected and enforced social ideas about gender and sex difference in society. So if we're talking about Western medicine, we're talking about a long history of, patriarchal ideas that assume women to have a certain role, which is to raise the children, to keep the house, um, and men have another role, which is to work, to be physical. And I think later, I mean, it took a long time for this knowledge to really evolve into something that was, I think, a mechanism of control. And I would say probably around the Middle Ages, you get to see a real path um, a real pathologization of women's reproductive the center of women's reproductive bodies as also a mechanism of how to control them so for example the healthiest state for a woman and this is from ancient Greece onwards was pregnancy right it made sense that if a woman was built for pregnancy that she was healthiest when she was performing that duty. So it doesn't take it's a hops given a jump from assuming that into then using ideas about women's weakness, women's primary duty to reproduce um, into medical law to restrict their rights.
0: I wonder if you could give us a few more examples as well uh, of the kind of maladies, if that's the right word, that were, were deemed to affect women and especially those kind of focusing on the reproductive si- system.
3: So, I think a really interesting interesting example of this is in the 17th century, so we're looking at sort of towards the end of the witch trials that swept across Europe between the 15th and 17th centuries. And in England, there was a woman named Elizabeth Jackson, who was accused of bewitching a shopkeeper's 14-year-old daughter, and the daughter was named Mary Glover. And a physician and chemist named Edward Jordan was called to the trial to give evidence, as this was often the case, physicians were sometimes involved in giving evidence in witch trials. And he was called to act in defence of Elizabeth Jackson, who was the woman accused of witchcraft. But what he... So what he did was he diagnosed what had happened to the young woman, Mary Glover, as an illness of her uterus of her womb, rather than as a possession or a bewitching. And Mary Glover, the young girl, had apparently all these very extreme symptoms, including, you know, fits um, and and her throat and neck apparently would swell and she sort of fainted and appeared as if she were dead. So Jordan developed a theory about a disease called Patio Hysterica, which was his version of... A long-standing disease of women called uh, suffocation of the womb, which is related to a stra- another strange uh, medical phenomena called wandering womb. Mm. And this—I was going to ask yes, you about this. And so, the ancient Greeks, of course, as we've said, believed that women's uteruses, their wombs, had a real, had really profound influence on their health. And so, they because, of course, they didn't do conduct autopsies and they didn't have x-rays, they made assumptions about the influence of the womb and the way that the womb behaved based on the symptoms that they could see. So if a woman was, was say, choking or feverish, they imagined possibly that her womb might have wandered and impacted on her
0: other organs, her liver and lungs and heart, for example. So it moved around inside her body and, say, like blocked her Yes. Windpipes or whatever. Absolutely. So
3: Edward Jordan, who's defending Elizabeth Jackson on uh, for a witchcraft trial, he looks at the woman she's supposed to, the young woman she's supposed to have bewitched and says, hang on, I think this is what's happening. I think something's happening that her uterus is suffocating her. She's not bewitched at all. And so he wrote a short pamphlet on this disease, this Pasio hysterica, which is considered to be the first treatise in English on a disease that later became called hysteria, which really great gained prevalence in the 18th and 19th centuries. So this pamphlet is an extraordinary document because it lists all the different manifestations of what this form of hysteria is. And it comes from the womb being unemployed or u- useless. So it's not... So in the case of Mary Glover, she's still young. She hasn't married yet and she's not pregnant or having children. So her womb in want of action is causing trouble. It's causing mischief in her body and causing a variety of symptoms that are so bizarre that they appear as if she were possessed. So she seems as if she were possessed by witchcraft. And the reason I like this as an example is because, of course, we understand the witch trials to be the result of different social, political, cultural forces around the control of not just women and their bodies, but also to do with class and to do with land and to do with very complex forces bring us the witch trials. And, of course, medicine comes into this, you know, in sort of fine third act and, and is a voice of reason. But in fact, what it does is it transforms witchcraft possession into hysteria which is another form of oppression that came to influence women's lives and ideas about their bodies and ideas about their minds for centuries to come so I find this fascinating and I mean the pamphlet is just brilliant it's you can read it online but it's such a fabulously interesting litany of the complaints that a a uterus could wage on a, on a woman's body and mind
0: Well, I I wanted to ask you about hysteria in its later form. As you say, it kind of took hold in the 18th and 19th centuries. What can you tell us about how that was used as a diagnosis and perhaps some of the the things that were deemed to cause it? I think
3: hysteria is so fascinating because it really was a shape-shifting diagnosis. It was more of a diagnostic category or a term, a blanket term, an umbrella term, that described symptoms of illness in women, so mental and physical symptoms, that often these symptoms had no direct explanation. So the common symptoms included fainting, included a sort of choking sensation, as we've talked about with suffocation, womb suffocation. Um, They they could include symptoms that we consider to be mental health manifestations today, so anxiety, anxiety, Um, a trembling Uh, so it was really a collection of almost every symptom you could think of and it really depended on who the physician was in terms of how they would interpret what was happening in a patient of theirs to be a manifestation of hysteria or not so I think the first real definitions of something that we would think of as hysteria come around in the 18th century when we start thinking about what's happening in women's nervous systems so the 18th century being the era of sensibility and feeling and there's a real fascination there with why we feel as a species why we feel the things we do why why we relate why where does emotion come from is emotion tangible is sensibility tangible and it's the beginnings of neurology as well and that's when i think definitions of hysteria they moved away from the uterus, the womb, and started to become something that took in all of a woman's body, specifically her nervous system. So from then on, you have a real relationship between this disease called hysteria, this multifaceted um, umbrella explanation for mysterious but troubling illness symptoms in women. And you have it as something that becomes really related to the emotions and the, and the thought and the capability And the sort of thought, mental, mind capability of women. So in the 19th century, hysteria really came to prominence in terms of what we imagine it to be now. And there were many different forms of hysteria. Um, There there was hysteria that was thought to be induced by uh, women having gynecological exams, for example. There was hysteria that was linked to family pressures, societal pressures, Um, And I've read case studies of of so called hysterics who, you know, might have lost both parents or had worked in a mill since they were very tiny. And you think, well, of course you would be unwell. You've been through an extraordinary amount in 16 years of life. So it, it came to be this real sort of blanket that accounted for the difficulties that women face and the way those are expressed in their bodies. And it was also commonly something that would send women to asylums, for example. But this is what's so interesting, that it comes to stand in this, this sort of error example, like the key example of medical oppression or of medicine's tendency to create a definition for something that's going on inside women's bodies and minds that's based more on social ideas about women rather than on cold, you know, scientific evidence and, and
0: knowledge. At the time, this, this idea that, the cause of this whole thing was was emotional um, and psychological, kind of manifesting as, as physical um, symptoms. That was a gendered thing, right? Men wouldn't be given diagnoses in a similar in a similar way. Thomas Sydenham, a physician in the eighteenth century,
3: did have definitions of male hysteria, but he. But again, what's interesting about this is that definitions of male hysteria tended to similarly be quite gendered. So male hysteria in the rare occasions when it was described tended to be something that was attributed to men who had more sedentary or, in quote marks, effeminate lifestyles. So if they were doing uh, clerical jobs, for example, or studying a lot or not going outside and, you know, running off their energy and hunting or what have you. So they were not sort of having the kind of constitution that could stave off these sorts of uh, tricky maladies. So yeah, so even when it was applied to men, it still tended to have this these gendered connotations.
0: You mentioned there that a diagnosis of hysteria could see women um, put into asylums. And some of the cures that were suggested for hysteria and its kind of affiliated diagnoses seem to me unbearable. I wonder if you could run us through a few of them. Yeah, of course. Um, this, I think it was One
3: of the most shocking aspects of researching the book was realising that some of these sort of barbaric cures that you hear whispers and rumours about really happened. And it wasn't so much just the cures, but also the awful justifications for them, like the way that knowledge was created by certain male physicians, especially gynecologists, in order to advance their careers, their reputations and their standing by almost inventing these more barbaric cures and um, remedies really for illnesses and diseases that they had created. For example, hysteria is a constructed idea. It's not based on any evidence of something that's happening in the body. It's an idea applied to women's illnesses. So I focused in the book on the 19th century in terms of how hysteria and also associated nervous disorders, non-specific kind of nervous illnesses in women were treated by gynecologists. And one of the most shocking was the ovariotomy, which is the removal of the ovaries. Now, ovary removal was something that was practiced in the 19th century, sometimes for good reason. Like, for example, if women had inoperable cysts or they had issues other issues to do with their reproductive organs the ovaries might be removed and but the procedure was very contentious it was very controversial and it carried a very high mortality risk some surgeons pioneered safer ovariotomies and really pushed the therapeutic benefits of this procedure for certain women But there were also some exceptionally scalpel-happy gynecologists who argued that because the ovaries were linked to women's nerves, that they believed there was a nervous sympathy between the ovaries and, I guess, the sort of mental cognitive system in women, that the ovaries had this really profound influence on women's behaviour. So if a woman is presenting with the characteristic symptoms of what that physician would deem hysteric or nervous illness, then that in itself could be justification for recommending her to submit to an ovariotomy. So that was one of the most shocking cures. It was also something, I think, more in the US than here, but it was also something that was recommended to be performed in asylums for the treatment of female insanity, Um, which often, of course, if this was happening in asylum, would have been largely non-consensual and women would not have been able to give informed consent and would not necessarily have even known what was happening to them. So that's particularly shocking. Um, A less... Common And thankfully quite sort of a limited example is that of the clitoridectomy, which was the removal of the glands of the clitoris as a treatment for, again, hysterical nervous illnesses, but also more serious illnesses like epilepsy in the 19th century. And although this, thankfully, this is quite contained and a lot of physicians at the time really argued that this was not something that should be performed on any woman, that it was barbaric, that if you had been, if you'd endured this operation, then you would be shamed, right? Because it was a mutilation that had happened because of overstepping social boundaries of sexuality, and around the time, and again, with the link between how these medical ideas were enforced and the social circumstances of the of the time, I don't think it's any coincidence that the clitoridectomy was a procedure that was performed around the time in the mid sort of mid mid late nineteenth century in England when there was fear around this idea of sexual contagion and the disruption of morality and You know, women for a long time have been seen as a sort of vector of infection, not just literally of viruses and diseases, but also of a kind of social contagion. That women's sexuality had this sort of um, injurious effect on society as a whole if it wasn't contained.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast...
3: So I think we, can le- we need to learn an enormous amount from the past, both in terms of how we celebrate the journey to where we've got to, and also in terms of having a really clear and careful think about the distance we have yet to go.
2: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/historyextra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp hel history historyextra
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring.
3: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America
0: NA, member FDSE. Another cure in Quate Marks that I wanted to ask you about was um, the REST cure, which was pioneered by Silas Weir-Mitchell. Um which some people might be familiar with if they've read the work of um Charlotte uh, Perkins Gilman, The Yellow wallpaper. What can you tell us about that? Well, the rescue was something as you say pioneered by an American neurologist
3: called Silas Weir Mitchell in the uh, late last decade, so from about eighteen seventy onwards Silas Weir Mitchell had developed the rescue because he had treated soldiers during the Civil War who were suffering from the kind of nervous exhaustion from bullet wounds and from just being in battle that, to his mind, really resembled female hysteria. So what he developed was a theory that was based on the idea that if you fattened up the blood, so if you fattened up a person's blood by feeding them very rich foods, so pints and pints of milk, I mean, at a heroic amount of milk and bone broth. So what we now like have is a sort of wellness, wellness bone broth. So a kind of bovril, <laughs> a bovril drink, a sort of meat, meat, sort of insipid kind of meat broth. And you would confine the patient to bed with no intellectual activity, no creative stimulation, no guests or visitors for a period of about three months or so. And while the patient was resting, they would also have different kinds of interventions like very sort of rigorous massages. And um, uh, yeah, the the whole point really is that you lie in bed and you fatten up your blood. And this is a way to sort of rebuild the emotional and physical constitution. Now, considering this this, uh, remedy had been developed based on men who had been traumatised, it's uh, egregious really that he then transferred this over to women who were diagnosed with these spurious hysteric and nervous illnesses. So when it was applied to women, when we Mitchell decided to apply this remedy to women, he called it a moral medication. So what he said was that not only would the rest cure and all the associated uh, treatments involved in the awful rest cure sort of cure, they would also break a woman's resolve. So he largely believed that any, any women, especially younger women who were presenting with symptoms that we would today understand as depression, as postnatal depression, as acute anxiety, even as autoimmune diseases or something like multiple sclerosis he believed that any symptom that could be uh, interpreted as, as hysterical nervous was related to women trying to get attention and trying to escape their domestic lives by retreating to their sick beds so in a way it was a sort of reverse psychology it's like if you want to be sickly all the time that's where you can stay you can imagine that
0: that that could really break you though mentally being left alone in a room with absolutely no stimulation or like you say no books to read for three months that surely was hugely damaging to some people i think it was it was
3: hugely damaging and the best example of just how damaging it was is the short story, the famous short story by the American feminist writer um, and lecturer and campaigner Charlotte Perkins Gilman. The Yellow Wallpaper was actually based on uh, Gilman's own experience of being subjected to the rescue by none other than Silas Weir Mitchell. Um, he was her doctor in the late 19th century. She suffered really terribly with postnatal depression and really acute periods of very, very deep well what was described then as as nervousness or melancholy but is now we would now understand as being a major sort of major depressive disorder and so she was looking for treatments and she'd heard that Silas Weir Mitchell was the best neurologist in the United States And she'd suffered so badly, a relative gave her some money and said, look, go away, please go away and get cured. So she spent some time at Silas Weir Mitchell's clinic in Philadelphia, where I think it was a few weeks, and she was resting there. And she felt, you know, okay, she felt a bit better, but she went home and was given this prescription from Weir Mitchell, which was to, you know, lie down as much as possible, be with your child constantly and never touch brush or pen again as long as you live. And for a writer, this was a really heinous. It might, mu- I mean, I can't imagine how awful it must have been to be told that your, the thing, that your vocation, the thing that you fought for, the thing that you love is the thing that's making you sick. So Charlotte Perkins Gilmer followed this regimen to the letter for months, and it made her, she said, you know, per- she came perilously close to the brink in her words. And she was left really, her mental and physical health was really ravaged by this. And she actually began to recover and heal when she started to work with a woman physician named Mary putnam Jacobi. And Mary putnam Jacobi was pioneering in many ways, but she developed a theory that hysteric and nervous illnesses weren't actually ca- caused by some failings of, of women to perform their domestic duty, but were actually caused by the oppressive circumstances that were foisted upon women to limit their lives and constrain their thoughts. So she said, okay, if we have a neurological disease that's sort of epidemic in women, maybe it's because they're not allowed to think, they're not allowed to act, they're not allowed to participate. So when she started working with Charlotte Perkins Gilman, Mary Putnam Jacobi began to rebuild her mental capacity slowly, using at first kindergarten blocks, you know, children's building blocks to make simple structures, and then reading a little bit until she felt strong enough to start writing again. And when she began writing again, is when she was really able to heal from that terrible, like, years of depression.
0: I think there's a really strong through line throughout this book and throughout this um, history of the same story kind of echoing down the ages. And by the time we get to the post-war era, um, something that you you look at is, I'd say it's probably a stereotype of the 1950s housewife um, dosed up on, you know, quote, happy pills. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the um, prescription of drugs like Milltown in the 1950s, to women and and how they were doled out so generously.
3: Yeah, so Milltown was the first minor tranquilizer. So it was a sedative medication that was designed to treat a variety of ailments, but mainly what has been called by some advertisers a sort of housewife hysteria. So the non-specific illnesses and complaints that women had from the 1950s had a sort of wonder cure and that was this pill called Milltown. It's post-war and women there's this new focus on domesticity and rebuilding the world after the um, horrendous you know death and destruction of World War II and in the States especially there's a real focus on the home as the centre of society especially the middle-class white home And women, of course, were at the centre of this. They were building the home. They were keeping the home fires burning. They were feathering a nest for their war-torn husbands and bringing up children and sort of trying to ascribe to all these ideals of not just domestic bliss, but also femininity. And this was, unsurprisingly, having a terrible effect on their mental health and on their physical health. So Milltown was pitched by the pharmaceutical companies as something that could really cure all of these problems and leave um, women, especially housewives and mothers, sort of blissfully calm and able, crucially, to continue all their domestic duties with a smile on their faces. But, of course, it wasn't curing anything. It was masking the true nature of the problem, and it was also turned out that it was habit-forming, and so it was pitched as something that was very safe, that anyone could take. And it and it, for that reason, it gained enormous popularity over the decades and became also really popular in the UK. Um, that era is famously described in the Rolling Stones song, Mother's Little Helper. And there's a line in this song that says, you know, something like, She's not really ill, but she runs to the shelter of a mother's little helper. So even sort of culturally, there was this notion that women were kind of almost inventing these sort of illness problems as a way to then kind of check out, right? Check out of what they had to do, check out of this feminine expectation. And the shocking thing about something like Milltown is that soon the advertising began to claim that it could cure symptoms of all sorts of underlying diseases, you know, it was recommended as a treatment in, say, multiple sclerosis, um, which is a really complex neuromuscular disease. But it was this this idea that everything that's wrong with, with womankind is one problem, which is their failure to accept that their role in life is to be domestic. Which, as you say, is something that had really, you know, it's a through line. It's really how it's almost like the washing line upon which a lot of ideas or sort of cultural medical attitudes towards women's bodies and illnesses is pinned.
0: So you mentioned earlier Mary Putnam-Jacobi and how she kind of developed um, a technique to help women that that essentially fought back against um, things like the breast cure And I just wonder if you could share some of the stories of pioneering women who aimed to tackle medical sexism, because you share a lot of those stories in the book as well. It's On the one hand, yeah, it is about oppression and the obstacles that women have faced, but it's also about how they've overcome them. Yeah, of course. I think that this this was always
3: really important to me when I was writing the book, because the history of ideas about women's bodies and illnesses is fascinating but it's also infuriating and oftentimes very harrowing and I think that there's always there's a fascinating story to be told if we look back through the way that these narratives of female oppression and how they were wrapped up with medicine are resisted by some really courageous resilient and incredibly intelligent pioneering women and I found some real heroes, not just in you know, female doctors and campaigners and activists, but also in patients themselves who would appear to me through case studies that I found, whose bodies or lives in some way kind of altered medical knowledge or contributed to medical knowledge. So there were these hidden kind of heroes that I found in the patients. But yeah, some of the key women... I mean, Mary Putnam-Jacobi is a wonderful example. She became... she's an American physician... Um, the second woman ever to graduate from the very prestigious School of Medicine at the University of Paris. And she gained her reputation by using evidence-based science. So the first project that she did that really sort of launched her public uh, reputation was she defended women against the accusation in the late 19th century that when they were menstruating, they needed just to rest, so coming back to the idea of the cure, that women's uh, the primary way that women can keep healthy is either to have children or abscond completely from public life and just go to bed. But she decided that this was something that she wanted to investigate and research for herself. So she interviewed um, all sorts of different women. And also did experimental physiological exams of things like their nutritional levels and their blood counts and their weight and their sort of energy levels. And she wrote a thesis that won a really prestigious medical prize at Harvard um, that disproved the necessity of rest during menstruation. And she said, look, unless, unless a woman has an underlying disease, which needs to be treated there's no reason why she can't continue to study and think and exercise and and participate in life so this is incredibly groundbreaking medical advance at a time when men were using ideas about female biology principally menstruation to sort of prohibit their rights and impede you know their right especially at that time to education and another woman who follows in closely in her uh well actually pro- proceeds her is, was called clearly a Dual Mosher and she similarly took on oppressive and rigid ideas about menstruation being a disease or an illness and again did this by, by carrying out qualitative research by asking women themselves what they felt about their bodies and their lives in order to create knowledge that was you know not just whip smart and accurate but also valued what women had to say about how they felt which you've know, so clearly, Dior Moshe was the sort of earlier part of the 20th century. So around the same time that um, fights for women's suffrage were continuing in the UK and the US. So it's no again, it's no coincidence that these pioneering and brilliant women in the field of medicine were doing their best work at times when women's rights were. Being brought to the fore, but they were also precarious, you know, like things like women's education, women's right to vote. These were precarious rights that women were fighting for. And medicine, like other societal systems, was involved in enforcing the idea that women shouldn't do this, that women shouldn't attain these rights. So as well as being brilliant physicians, they were also activists too. So really inspiring.
0: So how far have we come? Obviously, it's been a long battle, but what has been achieved by pioneers like those you just spoke about and what's still left to be done?
3: I think an enormous amount has been achieved. I think that, I mean, women's admittance into the field of medicine was really hard one. So when we now look at the... uh, How the sort of gender balance in medicine is leveling out more. That was a hard-won fight, you know, something that women themselves really had to insist upon and take for themselves. So I think that's something incredible. You know, we have this legacy of if when we, you know, see that not all hospital doctors are men, that's part of the legacy of this, of how far we have come in understanding that men are not the presumed authority over women's bodies and lives. I think also that we've come really far just in in the fact that, especially recently in the last 10 years, 15 years, that women are being empowered more to speak out about their bodies, about what happens to them medically. There are online forums, there are publications, there are ways in which women can speak out. And this, I think, was the issue for a long time, is that women weren't permitted to have this authority over their bodies. They weren't regarded as reliable narrators of what was happening in their bodies and minds. So any form of knowledge, any form of expression where a woman is able to say, look, this is happening to me and I understand what's my own pain, I think that's really revolutionary. And it's also, again, the legacy of women patients, women activists, women physicians, who always came back to this idea that women are the most reliable narrators of what's happening to them. You know, and they and women should believe be believed when they say they are in pain. In many ways, also we are still grappling with the residue of these old ideas. Ideas like hysteria might seem, you know, outrageous and like a fiction now, but the, the basic premise of that idea that a woman's pain is primarily emotional, that a woman might be exaggerating, that a woman needs antidepressants more than she needs pain therapies. These are impressed over, ingrained over centuries, and we're still grappling with them now. And we see that this is having a measurable and evidential impact on how women are treated in hospitals, by their doctors. So I think we we need to learn an enormous amount from the past, both in terms of how we celebrate the journey to where we've got to, and also in terms of having a really clear and careful
0: think about the distance we have yet to go. That was Eleanor Clegghorn. Her book, Unwell Women, A Journey Through Medicine and Myth in a Man-Made World, is out now, published by Orion. If you found this podcast interesting, then Eleanor will also be speaking as part of our virtual lecture series on the 22nd of July, and she'll be offering plenty more fascinating insights on this subject. If you're interested in attending, head to historyextra.com forward slash events and podcast listeners can get 15% off tickets. Just use the coupon code POD15 at the checkout. Eleanor has also written a feature on this subject for the August issue of BBC History magazine. That's out on Thursday the 8th of July and includes features on the French Revolution, Oliver Cromwell, the 1964 Tokyo Olympics and the Benin Bronzes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colleague. We'll be back tomorrow when Catherine Fletcher will be answering questions on the Medici.